Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Chris Bajalian is a masterful storyteller. All 16 of his novels are meticulously researched, and in his recent essay, For the Love of Writing, The Journey from Process to Product, he explains more about his process and how he began as a writer. The essay, as with anything Chris writes, is very worth reading. It is on his website. The Guest Room is a jaw-dropping thriller. The characters are so real, you might start looking at your neighbors every time they have a party. It's a cautionary tale about how one event can have unintended consequence, which changes, ruins, and demolishes lives. Like his other work, Chris includes events that we read in the headlines daily, in this case, sex trafficking. As I've said before, Chris is one of the most amazing writers I've read. He can weave stories within stories, and it fits so well together that readers are captivated. Chris has the gift of making readers think, wonder, and worry, and keep thinking long after they finish his novels. That's talent, and as a reader, you can tell he puts his all into every book. This is one of the best books I've read this year, and I know it'll stay on that list. Please welcome Chris Bajalian and the guest room. Thank you, Lisa. Can you travel with me and do that at all of these events? That was wonderful. Thank you. It is a pleasure. It is an honor. It is a privilege to be back at the Tattered Cover. Tonight is day four of the 20-city, 19-day guest room rock and roll, get your t-shirts, running slime dog of literary capitalism book tour. During the question and answer period, yes, we will be giving these away. The t-shirt cannons will be brought out. And you really are the few, the proud, the chosen... I heard from not one but two book groups and at least four other readers today on Facebook or in my email that they're not going to come because of the blizzard that's coming in tonight. I wanted to revoke their Denver, Colorado passes. But it's wonderful to see all of you here. Um, this is easily my 20th book tour, and I'm going to say that I've been to the tattered cover on at least... 12 of them. I actually love book tours. It it wasn't all that long ago that my book sold briskly, but only among people with my last name. (laughs) I try never to lose sight of that fact. But the reason why I love to come back to the tattered cover is because the things that that happen at some bookstores never happen here. The things that happen at some bookstores that make book tours onerous. I'll give you three moments. Moment number one. I'm at a really lovely bookstore in another part of the country, and I'm not appearing there. I'm actually appearing at that city's public library. But I go to the store during the day to sign the stock so there are signed copies for customers, and there are no copies of my book on the new table. There are none on the new wall. There are none in fiction. And this is week two of the book tour. I already know that the book is going to be debuting on the New York Times bestseller list, so I'm thinking to myself, 
they just sold out. <laughs> but ever the optimist, I go to the front desk and I say, hi, I'm Chris Bojalian. This is my new book. Do you have any copies you'd like me to sign? And the woman behind the register inputs my name and she says, yeah, I see we ordered three. Still got them. And she leads me to the far back of the store. And there on a shelf so high that a basketball player couldn't reach it are the three copies spine in. So ever the polite guest, I say, well, would you like me to sign them? And she says, and this is an exact quote, no, I'd rather you didn't. Our readers are very discriminating. <laughs> Sent him at a, a lovely bookstore in San Francisco, and it's been a very nice event. And now I'm at the table signing books for readers, and a gentleman comes up to the table and gets really far into my personal space, and he says, <sighs> You know that J.D. Salinger just died? He said, I do know that. He said, Howard Zinn passed away. He said, I heard. He said, Robert Parker died. He said, yeah, I know. He said, you scared? (laughs) And then there is this. I am on a panel for audiobooks. There are three of us and a moderator. Adriana Trigiani and a naturalist, and me. Adriana, of course, is a force of nature. She's just wonderful to listen to. The naturalist is there because he's just published a book chronicling the years he spent following raptors and hawks as they migrated from Canada to South America. For the first 15 minutes of the panel, it's very egalitarian. Adriana's getting questions. I'm getting questions. The naturalist is getting questions. About 15 minutes into the panel, however, I look to my left, and I see being rolled onto the auditorium stage a carton the size of a dishwasher, and it has air holes. I think instantly of what W.C. Fields once said, you never ever want to perform with small children or interesting animals. I know what's in that box. And sure enough, my fears are realized when Alan Tennant, the naturalist, gets out the glove, the big leather glove with the ties and the buckles and the stays, and his assistant places onto his arm a proud, majestic, regal, red-tailed falcon, and for the next 45 minutes, Adriana and I are completely invisible. I could have said, I know the epoxy that Trump uses to keep that squirrel on his head. And no one would have cared. So after about 45 minutes of not saying a word, the panel is now winding down, and there's a question from the very back row of the auditorium. The moderator recognizes this woman, and she says, I have a question for Chris. So I sit up. I put the toothpicks in my eyes, and she says, you haven't told us anything about your new book. I don't know. How are the reviews? And before I can answer this wonderful underhand question, the bird, which is still on the naturalist's arm, poops. <laughs> Raptor poop is not pigeon poop. Everyone in the auditorium can see it, including the moderator, who looks at the poop and looks at the bird and looks at me and then says, <laughs> well, we know what the bird thinks of his book. 
That won't happen at the tattered cover, which is why I am so privileged to come back time after time after time. Yeah, pigeon poop. That brings us to my work, to our work together this evening, the guest room. When my wife read a draft of the guest room, she turned to me in bed and said, wow, you've done it. Breaking Bad meets the bonfire of the vanities. I knew what she meant. This was, and this was the ultimate compliment because she loves um, Tom Wolfe's novel, The Bonfire of the Vanities, and she loves Breaking Bad. So this was just, just the ultimate gift. But I, I knew what she meant. Is the guest room a departure? In some ways. I'm known for two kinds of books, historical fiction and contemporary literature. Historical fiction, books such as The Sandcastle Girls, a big, sweeping, epic love story set in the midst of the Armenian genocide in the First World War, or Skeletons at the Feast, a novel about one Prussian family's complicity in the Holocaust in the Second World War. My contemporary literature, it's books such as Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, about a 16-year-old girl trying to keep it together, a homeless orphan, after a meltdown at Vermont's lone nuclear plant, or The Double Bind, about a social worker who believes she's found the bastard son of Jay Gatsby and Daisy Faye Buchanan. All of these books, however, I think share two threads, both of which run through the guest room. The first thread, dread. When my books work, and heaven knows they don't always work, one of the things that keeps you turning the pages is dread. And whenever I think of dread, I think first, actually, of a moment from a show that I just loved, Mad Men. You don't have to have watched the show to know the moment, but imagine this. A middle school-aged girl named Sally Draper gets out of a cab on the Upper East Side when she's supposed to be going to school to return to her father, Don Draper, and her stepmother's apartment. And everyone who's watching the show knows that she is going to catch her father, Don, having sex with a downstairs neighbor, and it is going to be cataclysmic for her and her father a game changer that may destroy their relationship. I am watching the scene at the edge of my couch at 5 of 11 at night in our TV room while my wife is sound asleep in our bedroom and I'm talking to the television set saying, Sally, no, get back in the cab. Don't go there. That's dread. The other thread, something my daughter once observed. My daughter is a, a 22-year-old actor in New York City. Very smart. She actually is the audiobook narrator for Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands. She's one of the audiobook narrators for The Guest Room. She brings Alexandra, who I'll tell you about in a moment, to life. After she read a rough draft of Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, she said to me, Dad, take this as a compliment because I mean it that way. But I think your sweet spot as a writer is seriously messed up young women. <laughs> I knew what she meant. And when you think of my books, whether historical fiction, 
or contemporary, they're all about physically and emotionally scarred young women who are smart and courageous and hopefully going to transcend the horrors they've witnessed or endures. Think of it. In contemporary literature, Emily Shepard, she's a cutter. She's popping Oxycontins like M&Ms. Laurel Estabrook, she's endured a cataclysmic sexual assault and is spiraling into madness. In historical fiction, Serafina Bettini in The Light in the Ruins, a partisan burned almost beyond recognition in a firefight with the Nazis, now a homicide detective and a burner, which is a cutter with fire, or all of those young women and girls in the Sandcastle Girls, forever scarred by the horrors of the Armenian genocide, Karine, Nevart, Hatun. So, The Guest Room. The Guest Room was a novel of suspense about a marriage in crisis, two remarkable women, and that one moment you wish more than anything you could take back. It had its origins in 2013, when my wife and my daughter and I were in Armenia. And on this trip, we'd brought with us a friend of my daughter's, who was my daughter's age. Both girls were 19. This other girl, like us, was part Armenian, but she had never been to Armenia, so we were showing her around. She was going home a day before my family on a 6 a.m. flight to Moscow. And because I'm a dad, I said, okay, meet me in the lobby at 3.30 so I can bring you to the airport, get you checked in, get you to security. And I got downstairs at about 10 after 3 in the morning because I didn't want her alone in a lobby in a hotel in the middle of the night. And when I got there before her, I saw another young woman, my daughter's age or younger, who's clearly an escort, paying off the bellman to go upstairs and go back to work. We've all seen escorts in nice hotels in America, but this was particularly heartbreaking for me as a dad of a daughter and as an Armenian-American. I began to wonder, is there a novel in a story of a young woman such as this? And when you begin to research prostitution in the Caucasus or the Middle East, you are a razor-thin line away from researching human trafficking. The International Labor Organization estimates that human trafficking is a $150 billion business. A portion of that is sexual slavery and sex trafficking. According to Siddharth Kata at Harvard, who is sort of the real expert on the subject, there are probably 1.2 million young women, girls, boys, trafficked across international borders as part of the sexual slavery market. In America, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children believes one out of every six runaway teenagers is now in some form of sexual entrapment and exploitation. Which brings me to the guest room. The guest room is about four people. I'm going to start with the Americans. There's Richard and Kristen Chapman. She's a history teacher. He's an investment banker. They live in a Tony suburb of New York City. Nice house. What I hope is an adorable nine-year-old daughter, Melissa. And then 
there's a girl named Alexandra, an Armenian girl born Anahit. More on her in a moment. Richard and Kristen agree that Richard will host his idiot younger brother's bachelor party. They fully expect his idiot younger brother's friends will bring a stripper. Instead, however, the idiot younger brother's friends bring what they believe are two escorts, who turn out to be not escorts, but sex slaves brought from Russia, um, who've been imprisoned for essentially five years, who choose that bachelor party to kill their Russian gangster captors and escape into Times Square. So if you are Richard, how do you explain to your wife, honey, don't come home tonight. The house is a crime scene and there are two dead Russians in the living room. Oh, by the way, I was upstairs in the guest room with one of the girls. How do you explain that to your nine-year-old daughter? And how do you explain that to your investment bank on Monday morning when you're on the front page of the New York Post? That other character, Alexandra, she is one of two sex slaves who are abducted from Yerevan, Armenia, as 14 and 15-year-olds, brought to Moscow, where they are enslaved for almost five years, and then brought to the United States with a promise of freedom. Whenever I finish a book, and it works, and heaven knows many of them don't, I'm always left with a certain postpartum sadness. I, I miss the characters. How much did I miss Alexandra when I finished this book? I actually wrote a short story about her in December. Nothing very bad can happen to you there. Some of you might have read it, either on the social networks or from my email lists. So tonight I want to introduce you to Alexandra and to Richard and to Kristen. I'm going to read portions of the first two chapters. And this book by design moves back and forth between third-person omniscient chapters featuring the Americans, Richard, Kristen, Melissa, and first-person chapters featuring Alexandra. Why is Alexandra the only first-person voice? Because the sex slave in this world rarely gets a voice, and I wanted to make sure that I could give her one. After I read, I will turn it over to all of you for your questions about anything. And I'm assuming all of you can hear me. Richard Chapman presumed there would be a stripper at his brother Philip's bachelor party. Perhaps, if he had actually thought about it, he might even have expected to. Sure, in sitcoms, the stripper always arrived alone. But he knew that in real life, strippers often came in pairs. How else could there be a little pretend, or not pretend, girl-on-girl action on the living room carpet? Besides, he worked in mergers and acquisitions. He understood the exigencies of commerce as well as anyone. Two strippers meant you could have two gentlemen squirming at once. You could have two girls hovering just above two sets of thighs, or... If the girls saw the right combination of neediness and dollar signs in the men's eyes, not hovering, but in fact descending upon each of the men's laps. Richard wasn't especially wild 
about the idea of an exotic dancer in his family's living room. There was a place for everything in his mind, even the acrobatically tensed sinews of a stripper. But that place wasn't his home. He didn't want to be a prig, however. He didn't want to be the guy who put a damper on his younger brother's bachelor party. So he told himself that the entertainment would be some girl from Sarah Lawrence or Fordham or NYU with a silly, mellifluous, made-up name making a little money for tuition. He didn't completely believe that, but in some backward universe sort of way, he felt a little less reprehensible, a little less soiled, if he was getting turned on by a 21-year-old sociology major with a flat stomach who understood the cultural politics of stripping and viewed herself as a feminist capitalist. Richard's wife, of course, was not present that evening. Kristen had made sure that she and her daughter were at her mother's apartment in Manhattan. The three of them, three generations of females, one with white hair, one with Wheaton, and one with hair that was blonde and silken and fell to her shoulders, ate dinner at an Italian restaurant the granddaughter liked. It was near Carnegie Hall. The three of them had theater tickets for a Broadway matinee the following afternoon, Saturday. They weren't planning to return home until Sunday. There were supposed to be no videos of the bachelor party. One of the women's Russian bodyguards told the men to keep their phones in their pants. He said if he saw a phone, he'd break it. He said he'd break the fingers that had been touching the phone, too. He was smiling when he spoke, but no one doubted his earnestness. So there were mostly just stories of what seems to have occurred. How it all went from stripping to sex. How it all went wrong. There was only what the gentleman, including Richard Chapman, told the police. The talent's versions? The talent was gone. And those bodyguards? They were dead. Kristen stood in a navy blue sleep shirt in the window of the guest bedroom in her mother's apartment on East 89th Street and gazed south at the lights of Midtown Manhattan. The cotton felt damp against her shoulders and the small of her back. Only moments ago she had emerged from the shower. She hoped the party was going well and Richard was having fun. She and Richard had decided in the end that there probably was going to be a stripper. They knew Philip would want one and they knew his idiot friends would oblige. But she figured that any woman who took her clothes off in a Bronxville living room was pretty harmless. Good Lord. When she thought about the way that she and Richard had partied when they had been in their 20s, when they'd been dating... A bunch of guys nearing middle age, drinking beer and watching a stripper in a living room seemed downright innocuous. It might not be politically correct, but it was benign. And Richard worked so hard and had so few friends. There were the guys he played golf with every so often at Siwanoi. There were the women and men at the bank. But the reality was that her husband was one of those men who spent hours at the office or traveling and played almost exclusively with her and with their daughter. 
She worried sometimes that beneath that facade, he was a little lonely, a little wistful, a little sad. She wondered if he might make a new friend at the party. She rather hoped so. She decided to text him to see how the party was going. She had no idea if the stripper was there yet. For all she knew, the woman had already come and gone. And for the first time, her mind wandered to the sorts of things a stripper did in a living room in Westchester for a bunch of guys, some married, some not, in their 30s and 40s. She guessed lap dances, though she honestly wasn't sure what a lap dance really was. She'd never been to a strip club. She had asked Richard whether he thought the woman would be fully naked in their house or still clad in some sort of stripper thong. Is there such a thing as a stripper thong? He had asked her in a turn, kidding, but also curious in a puerile sort of way. I kind of think a thong is a thong. Is a thong, Kristen had added, recalling the Gertrude Stein remark about a rose. But then she had thought more about it, the idea of exotic dancewear and raised an eyebrow. You do know what I mean, honey, she'd added. Thong, he answered, but she could tell he didn't believe that. Or maybe he was just hoping he was mistaken. She couldn't decide from his tone. Heaven knows he liked the look of a woman in a thong. He'd certainly bought her plenty of them over the years. But of course, she viewed them largely as foreplay, date wear. Sure, the girls in her high school class insisted on wearing them all day long, but they didn't know any better. They were still willing to sacrifice comfort for fashion because, of course, there was no more disagreeable panty in the world than a thong. As Richard himself had once joked, (laughs) Victoria's real secret is that she's into some seriously uncomfortable underwear. In the bed behind her, in her mother's apartment, Melissa was watching an old episode of Seinfeld. Kristen climbed back into bed beside her and started a crossword puzzle. Fifteen minutes later, her phone vibrated, and she saw that Richard had texted back. Bacchanalian, he had written. Not proud. I'm hoping everyone leaves by midnight. I'm going to call cabs for some of Philip's pals. She smiled. It sounded like he was having fun. She was impressed that he had spelled Bacchanalian correctly. (laughs) Though she guessed the phone might have auto-corrected it for him. She shut it off for the night. A few minutes later, while her daughter was still watching a sitcom that had been off the air for nearly two decades, she fell asleep. She would be awakened by the old-fashioned landline in the apartment just before three in the morning. And Kristen knew, even then, the odds are high that a call to a landline, to any line, at three in the morning is the ringtone of calamity, life-changing calamity. That call, it is the raven. This next section is Alexandra. And here, you will wildly need to suspend disbelief. And instead of seeing a 
balding middle-aged guy, you will see Alexandra, 19 and change, an Armenian girl, speaking to you in her fourth language. I was so happy to see New York City. I was so excited. In the crowds, the skyscrapers, and even in the men, I saw my freedom. This was my future. They brought three of us from Moscow, Sonia, Crystal, and me. The rules were clear, and the money was clear. I knew they might change the rules because they had done that before, but you always hope. I mean, I do. This time you hope. Deal won't change. This time you tell yourself there won't be surprises. That was naive. They always changed rules. They always kept you on your back. That's just an expression I learned. Often, I was not on my back. But you don't need to hear gymnastics. No one does. Anyway, this time, I believed them. I did. It might be two years they were telling me. It might be three. But either way, by the time I was 22, I would be on my own. And I would be in America. New York City, center of universe, yes? I knew New York City from movies. Sonia and Crystal did too. Watching movies was one of the ways we'd kill time during the day when we were back in Moscow. Muscovites, a word that makes people who live there sound like cave people, which they are not, loved films that made fun of communism or showed the West winning Cold War, which was way before my time, or celebrated getting rich quick, which was my time completely. Many of the movies were set in Manhattan. We learned about Staten Island Ferry from movie called Working Girl, which had nothing to do with what we did. But the title, if we had known expression back then, would have made us think it did. And we always watched The Bachelor. We watched it for hours and hours. The Bachelor always had clean fingernails. He seemed gentle. He didn't have scars. His women always had straight white teeth, and they applied their makeup perfectly. We all loved the moment with the rose. Our men never gave us flowers. Why would they? For a while, we lived in a cottage as glamorous as some of the places where the girls were hoping to seduce the bachelor were staying. But unlike them, we were never allowed to leave. We had one hour of sunlight. So, it was like I knew New York City before I got there. All three of us did. We knew some of the buildings so well from movies and hotel room TVs that when we saw real things, they looked shabby. The Empire State Building is as big as you would expect when you see it for first time. But on the sidewalk, there's all this garbage, and the men look nothing like the bachelor. And the Times Square, there is nothing like it in Yerevan or Moscow. But the movies had prepared me for the amazing light show, made of flat-screen TVs, Xbox games, and fancy bras. What the movies had not prepared me for was that a five-foot-tall thing called a Sesame Street Elmo would try and hit on me there and be flattened by Pavel. 
This poor little man in his furry red costume never saw Pavel's fist coming. After they showed us the city, I thought a lot about two structures on two smaller islands. To the south, there was the Statue of Liberty. I think I'd expected more when we stood at the Battery Park and looked out at her there in the harbor with her torch. I joked to Sonia that Mother Armenia, who stands on hill in Yerevan and looks out across city, would have kicked her butt. And then, to the north, was the jail, the Rikers Island. They showed us that too. They made it really clear that just as they could kill us, a reminder you would think we never needed, but I guess poor Crystal did, they could simply drop us into jail. They called it cesspool. That was how they described it. The truth is, I usually felt safer with the men who paid for me than I did with any of our daddies or the white Russian or even the guys who protected us like Pavel. Even my house mother could scare me. It was on my 21st night in America that everything went to hell. I mean that, to hell. First, Sonia and I learned that Crystal was dead. They'd killed her, our Russian daddies. And then Sonia finally lost her mind. I saw it coming that night, her going totally crazy. But I thought she was going to make it through the party for The Bachelor. Nope. I don't know. Maybe we had both lost our minds years ago. Probably. But this was the night when Sonia went wild. She went wild and stabbed Pavel because he and Kirill were the muscle who had shot baby Crystal and disposed of her tiny body God alone knew where. Here's a memory that surprises me. I saw a bunch of Barbie dolls in this little girl's bedroom that night in the house where they had taken us. They were in a big plastic trunk. The dolls had reminded me of my own collection of Barbies when I'd been kid, and I still think of that other girl's Barbies sometimes. It was a few minutes after the best man had decided not to have sex with me, which was first, and then we went downstairs. The Barbies were maybe the last thing I would notice before I would see Sonia on the back of that bastard named Pavel. Her legs were wrapped around her belly, and her left arm was hugging his chest. Her right arm was like a piston with a carving knife in it, and she was plunging the knife over and over into his neck. That's also an image you have never forget. Later, I would see that his blood was on her arms and in her hair. I would see blood everywhere. Somehow, until that moment, I had kept it together that night at the party. I was scared not to. I did my job. They had told us what they had done to Crystal, and then put us in the car and driven us out to Westchester to work party. The party was for a bachelor. But the man getting married was nothing like the bachelors we had seen on TV. Oh, he was handsome. He had nice eyes. And he was always laughing, at least until he saw Pavel getting killed. But he was not the type who was ever going to get down on one knee and give Garl a rose. I had been around enough men 
that I can tell. Maybe his brother Richard was, but he was twice my age. And the other men at the party, most were the kinds of dudes who only had girls like us when they paid. I did what they wanted, I even smiled and played along as if it was just another night, another party, because I knew Pavel and Kirill were watching. But Sonia, she was just biding her time a lot of the evening. She was pretty sure they were going to kill her too after the party. She told me that later. But by then, by then we were gone. By then, we were running for our lives. Thank you very, very much. And now the first question is the hardest for you and for me. And I will repeat the question. Wow, I was going to say, whoever's willing to ask the first question is going to get a t-shirt. I saw three hands go up simultaneously. I think I saw yours first. Hello. The question is this, who did I talk to for getting the voice right for Alexandra? Um, you know, I first of all, I spoke to friends of mine who are Armenians, but who grew up in Yerevan, because I wanted the accent to be Eastern Armenian. I wanted the accent to have um, a tinge of Russian. So that's one of the places. Um, but the other thing that I did was this. I created a very long style guide or style sheet for Alexandra so that all of her linguistic tics are consistent throughout the book. When she uses articles correctly, when she doesn't. Um, how she uses proper names, how she uses adjectives. Have you ever gotten a t-shirt before? I don't think you have. No. Okay, what's your name? Lynn. Well, Lynn is getting the first guest room t-shirt, and there is Colorado down. And I saw hands on either side. We will go here, but did either of you have questions you wanted to ask? Okay, here, and then here, and then there. Well, the first row is just killing it. No pressure to the back. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay, I've got to repeat the question. But before I repeat the question, um, I need to give a shout out because this lovely reader said, my wife is lucky. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I know I'm really blessed that she puts up with me. So thank you for saying that. Um, the question is this. Um, how do I write like a woman, essentially? Is that a good way to repeat it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, I have to tell you that my favorite review I've ever gotten in my life was for Midwives, the book that your book group read. It was in Library Journal. It was December 1996. And the reviewer concluded, an added benefit of this novel 
is the candor and honesty with which Chris Bojalian writes about her experiences in labor <laughs> and, and what it must have been like for her to give birth. I was so proud of that. I do like to write across gender, and I probably do it in easily half my books. And, and I don't just do it because I think your gender is way more interesting than, than my gender. Um, I do it because often the story I'm telling demands um, a character willing to take great and profound emotional risks that my gender, I think, is less likely to do. I mean, I've told, you know, I used to joke with my, my late father and my brother about this, that the only reason golf and football and baseball were invented were so that men would talk to each other. Every conversation of consequence I had with my father was interspersed with conversations about golf or football. Um, women are different. And, and that's why we need you. My gender needs you so badly. The Sandcastle Girls is a case in point. It's narrated by a female version of me, an Armenian-American novelist at midlife who knows far too little of her own ancestry. That could have been a guy. But I knew the emotional journey on which Laura Petrosian was going to embark, all because of a photograph. And I didn't see a guy doing that. So, well, yes, and there, and then there. I have a question. My question is, in the writing process, when do you know the end of the book? When do you know how it's going to end? Okay, the question is this. In the writing process, when do I know a book is going to end? Your questions are great. It's an inexact science. Writing a book in some ways is a bit like riding a roller coaster. You have your ups and your downs, you have your narrative arc, you have your climax. For me, in most of my books, I have no idea where they're going. I depend upon my characters to take me by the hand and lead me through the dark of the story and help me figure out the ending, the climax, the epiphany. And that's sort of the you know, you get to the top of the roller coaster, the dread, the dread, the dread, the dread. You go down the roller coaster, and then it's all, for me, epilogue. And I usually have, um, at this point in my life, a muscle memory that this book is climaxed. We are at the far end of the roller coaster, and it needs to end. And sometimes that's at 80,000 words. Sometimes that's at 120,000 words. I will tell you this. There is a sense of um, narrative momentum. I always know how many words I've written. And when I'm at 70,000 words and I don't know how it's going to end, then the dread becomes internalized. <laughs> Okay, because you asked two questions, you're going to get a t-shirt. What's your name? Colleen. Colleen is getting a t-shirt. Do you like garden, go to spin class? Well, in the winter, do you like go to spin class? The gym? You look lovely. Okay, okay. Um, do, okay, okay. Tomorrow, then the next time the temperature in Denver goes above 50, you're going to wear this outside. 
You see, ask two questions. You get to be a walking billboard for my work. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. Okay. Um, the second question I'm going to answer first. Who are some of my favorite writers? It's a really, really long list. And I'm friends. So I'm, so I'm going to begin with this. I'm going to tell you some of the books that I've read in the last few months that absolutely knocked my socks off. Another thing I will also tell you is if you follow me on Goodreads, you can always see all of the books that I liked enough to put on Goodreads. When I don't like a book, I do not put it on Goodreads because every book that I like, I just, I just put on Goodreads, just give it five stars because I read so many of my friends' books. So recently I went through a phase where I was reading New York City set fictional doorstops. Back to back to back, I read and loved Garth Risk Hallberg's City on Fire, um, Hanya Yanaga's A Little Life, which devastated me. And I was late to the party for this one, but Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. I loved all of those books a very, very great deal. Um, I love everything that Joyce, almost everything that Joyce Carol Oates writes or John Irving writes. Some of my friends who are writers whose work I revere certainly includes John Searle's Help for the Haunted, Stephen Kiernan, The Hummingbird, Jody Pico, Leaving Time. Um, Jay Perini just came out with a great biography of Gore Vidal, Howard Frank Mosier, God's Kingdom. Um, there may, um, you know, I also love the work these days of Emma Straub. Emily St. John Mandel. And I got to give a shout out to Colorado's own Peter Heller for the painter and for the dog stars. Your first question, what are my favorites of my books? First of all, I've written some terrible books. I've written 18 books and I kind of liken what I do at this stage in my life to being a, a pitcher. I'm, you know, imagine you go to the mound at Coors Field 32 times a year. If you're really good, you're going to win 20 times, but you're still going to lose six or seven. You're going to have some no decisions. And of my 18 books, I've written a couple that I'm, I think will stand the test of time for a bit and some that, um, you should set your furnace to Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> I will always be very, very proud of the Sandcastle Girls. As an Armenian-American, that means so much to me, that book. And Skeletons at the Feast. I will always be very proud of The Guest Room and Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, which I think is always going to be my misunderstood trouble child. I love Emily Shepard so much. And you know that expression, this book sold like hotcakes? Close your eyes, hold hands, sold like whatever is the opposite of hotcakes. It got universally great reviews, but the combination of the title, my title, which was indecipherable, no one knew what it was about, and the fact that um, some readers thought it was young adult and didn't know if that would appeal to them meant that um, it just never did what I wanted it to do for Emily Shepard. Well, well, thank your husband for, well, bring, thank him for me. Thank, okay. 
Yes, other questions. Yes. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Sutter brings up Transistorator. Transistorator is also a book I'm very, very proud of. It is about um, uh, it, it's a, a transgender love story um, between um, a member of the trans community and a um, a woman who, prior to falling in love with Dana, just to prove, assumed she was um, a straight sixth grade teacher. But then she fell in love with Dana and began to reimagine what it meant to love somebody. What, what, what is the definition of love? How broad are love's shoulders? And in fact, it's actually set partly in Trinidad, Colorado. Um, because, you know, in the 1990s, that was one of the places where sexual reassignment surgery was done. The book, when it came out, um, that's another one of those books that sold like the opposite of hotcakes. But the reason was this. Readers in very forward-thinking cities like San Francisco and Boston, I mean, booksellers literally said to me, I'm in San Francisco and a bookseller picked up Transistor Radio and said to me, you know, people pick this book up and say, oh my gosh, I love Midwives. I love the Law of Similars. And then they see what it's about and they drop it like it's the Ebola virus. A bookseller in Boston said to me, I got to tell you, it's easier for me to, to hand sell sex for one than Transistor Radio. Um, so it was not a huge seller, but it continued to sell at moderate levels. And as our culture became more interested in and more desirous of learning about um, um, all the spectrum along the LGBT community, more and more readers picked it up and read it. And so that over time, it developed an audience. Now, is it ever going to be a big book again? It'll never be a big book again because now, almost 16 years later, it is weirdly dated when Caitlyn Jenner announced her um, reassignment, my agent in Hollywood said, you know, let's see if we can make this movie happen. Because actually, I will say this. The book was with Miramax and Wes Craven for four years between 1999 and 2003. But they could never get A-list talent willing to be in it for Miramax. So anyway, so my agent said, let's see if we can re rebirth this. And all of the studio executives, uh, you know, even, um, you know, Everyone, they all read it and said, essentially, hey, what's the big deal? It's a woman who's in love with a guy who's transitioning. Why is this interesting? Which is actually, in a weird way, kind of reassuring that, that there are, are people in the entertainment community who look at that and say, you know, more power to them both. God bless them. Thank you for reminding me of that book. We'll go there, there, and then there. Hello. Hi, Tammy. Thank you. 
Well, thank you. This is Tammy who, thank you, you know, like the night, strangers and close your eyes, old hands. Emily Shepard, thanks you. Chip Linton, thank you. I thank you. Um, for the, what kind of research did I do for this book? Did I talk to sex slaves? Um, I did my homework. I talked to people. I read what I needed to read. I did my interviews. But this is what's important. I'm a novelist, and I want you to approach this book as a novel. I want you to approach this book as a page-turner with characters you care about desperately and an ending that I hope surprises you. If you want to learn about sexual slavery, there are so many good books out there. And the one I will recommend to you tonight is Siddharth Kata's book on sex trafficking. Um, it actually came out eight years ago, but it is so smart. One of the things I learned from that book is when we think of sexual slavery, we think first of the Far East, Philippines, and Thailand. When did it become a Western phenomenon? 1980. I'm sorry, um, 1990, when the Berlin Wall fell. All of the Soviet republics, all of the Eastern European satellite nations, the Caucasus, were put into economic turmoil. And what is the very bottom of the economic food chain? Women and young girls. And so that is when the Western sexual slavery business really began to grow. Most of the sex slaves in Italy, they're Moldovan. They're Romanian. Great question. I saw a hand over here. Hi. Hello, Lisa. Hmm. Is there movie news? I have no movie news on the guest room, but I have great movie news on the Sandcastle Girls. Um, the Sandcastle Girls is in pre-production for a feature film written and directed by um, a terrific California filmmaker. Um, the Blue Hour Bullies, his name is Eric Nazarian, and he has written a screenplay that is a thousand times better than my novel. He has given his heart and soul to raise the millions and millions of dollars it will take to make this movie. He will be announcing casting pretty soon because he's going to be filming it in May and June in Spain and Boston. Yeah. My hope is that it will be our, the Armenian community's Schindler's List. Okay, who came really far to be here? Lori. That counts. I also have to give a shout out to Lori because um, Lori is a friend of mine from high school. Lori and I graduated together from Bronxville High School. I look really old. She looks young and lovely. So, Lori, behold your official Bronxville T-shirt. I was a terrible human. What was I like in high school? I was a terrible human being. Patty Penfield could tell I was a terrible human being in college. I was just a, I was despicable on just so many levels. Is there another question? Yes.
Okay, this is a teacher who wants to know what I start with. And remind me, I want to repeat for everyone, what are the four things you have your students start with? Three things. Okay, she has her characters start with three things. Char- three Her students start with three things. Character, setting, and problem. I think that's wonderful. And that's more than I start with. I start with but two things. A premise and a voice. Um, human trafficking. Sexual slavery. A sex slave talking. No idea where it's going or what it's going to be about. So I'm actually going to read you the very first sentence that I wrote of this book. It appears on page 284. On Wednesday, December 7, 1988, my father and grandfather were stealing two boxes of wristwatches for Communist Party official, very big deal guy. Official was going to give them away at fancy gathering at his fancy dhaka on Lake Savan. And the wristwatches were with other stuff in these two crates. That was the first sentence I wrote. What happened on December 7th, 1988? The second largest city in Armenia was destroyed by a cataclysmic earthquake. Gumadi. That's all I begin with them. I need to know the premise and the voice Is she or he speaking the first person, the third person, or is it a third person omniscient novel, a Jamesian novel? Okay, I want to do one more question and give away one more t-shirt. Who is the last question? And I will answer other questions when I'm signing books if I didn't answer your question tonight. Yes. Hi, Lucille Zimmerman. It's great to see you. This is all, I gotta give a shout out to Lucille because Lucille is also an immensely gifted writer. So thank you for being here. And she writes about really important stuff, way more important than what I write about. Yes and no. Lucille is saying, when you were reading, I could hear some humor and some quirkiness. Um, the reality is that all of my books, I hope, are about horrific things and they are leavened by moments of either grace or humor. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why the Sandcastle Girls goes back and forth between first person in Bronxville um, there's another book in Bronxo. And third person in Aleppo, Syria in 1915 is to give readers a respite um, from the horror of the genocide. Even even Sybil Danforth in Midwives, I think, has got a really good sense of humor in her diary entries. And Connie Danforth, what is the first thing Connie says in chapter one? I used the word vulva as a child, the way some kids said butt or penis or puke. Wasn't a swear exactly, but it had an edge to it that could stop adults cold in their tracks. Now, of course, you know, 90 pages later, she's, you know, explaining a bedroom cesarean that would forever scar her mother and, and kill, um, Charlotte Fugit Bedford. Before I sign your books, I need to, um, first of all, 
thank um, a couple of people. I need to thank Lisa Maxson. Lisa takes such good care of me when I am in Colorado. She gets me to all of the places I have to get to, whether it's TV stations, radio stations, or the tattered cover, and she's just absolutely amazing. She knows things authors need before authors. And so, Lisa, thank you for all that you do. Um, I have to thank Lisa Casper, who just not simply for that wonderful introduction, but for all of your hard work at the library in Highlands Ranch, here at the bookstore, celebrating daily what words and reading and books can mean to the soul. I have to thank all of you who came out in the snow tonight, because you can see there are empty chairs. Not everyone came out tonight. So I thank all of you. It is such a gift. Getting to do what I get to do is because of all of you. I bow before you, and I thank you profoundly. Um, I shared with you some bad statistics before. I want to share with you a good statistic now. There are still more bookstores in this country than there are McDonald's fast food franchises. So I thank all of you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.